Hello and welcome to a new episode of Oxide Film. Just before we're joined by the broadcaster and presenter of Front Row, Kirsty Lang, we thought we'd give you a quick summary of a few of the classic Hollywood films that we're going to be discussing, just in case you haven't seen them. So first up, we have Joseph Mankiewicz's 1950 film, All About Eve, starring Betty Davis as Margot Channing, a talented, audacious, but ageing Broadway star who begins to feel her position and relevance threatened when the younger, fresh-faced newcomer, Eve Harrington, attempts to usurp her. Now, Betty Davis herself moved out of Broadway into Hollywood in 1930, and she was someone who wasn't afraid of playing often quite challenging and unlikable roles. She was starring in Human Bondage in 34 as a very vulgar waitress, and she was later nominated for films like Jezebel, and then for Now Voyager, Irving Rapper's 1942 film. Second up, we have another 1950 feature directed by Billy Wilder, which is Sunset Boulevard, starring Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond and William Holden as Joe Gillis. The story is as follows. A failing screenwriter, Joe Gillis, is hired by the faded silent film star, Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, to rewrite and edit her comeback script. Norma slowly but surely draws Joe into a tragic world of obscurity and reveals the extent of her delusional belief that she ought to and will return to stardom in Hollywood. Now, Gloria Swanson was, uh, in a very kind of meta way, uh, a faded silent film actress herself. Her last performance um, before Sunset Boulevard was nine years before, and her most notable performance was actually in Stage Struck in 1925, which, contrasting to Sunset Boulevard, shows her as an aspiring young actress. Um, In the actual film, you'll see her showing some of her old um, films to the actor William Holden playing Joe. It's a very kind of, as I mentioned, meta commentary on the way in which the current Hollywood system, or should I say the Hollywood system in 1950s, was built up on the shoulders of these now faded uh, silent actors and actresses. And you'll see cameos in the film if you do choose to watch it from uh, Buster Keaton, obviously a famous silent star, and Anna Nilsson. And lastly, we take a look at Billy Wilder's 1960 film, which marks quite a new turning point in his career. The Apartment, which is a darkly comic takedown of corporate America, starring Jack Lemmon as Baxter, a relatively unknown clerk at a massive New York insurance firm. And he lets his colleagues use his apartment for their extramarital affairs in hope of a promotion one day. But he slowly becomes drawn into the relationship between one of the women in his office, played beautifully by Shirley MacLaine, and the head of his company. We hope you enjoy our conversation about these three seminal features in Hollywood with the broadcaster and journalist Kirsty Lang. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Oxide Film. Myself and Colette are joined today by long-term broadcaster and presenter of BBC Radio 4's front row, Kirsty Lang. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us. How are you keeping at the moment in this sort of isolation period? Um, fine, actually. I mean, I, I'm, I'm enjoying having more time to read books, uh, you know, watch old movies. I am. Uh, I have been designated actually, because <laughs> as a key worker, so as lots of people in the BBC have. So I actually still go into broadcasting house. 
a couple of days a week in order to broadcast because although we have a lot of regular broadcasters broadcasting from home uh there what simply wasn't the equipment to set everybody up um so uh those who are prepared to sort of go into the office um uh do it from broadcasting house it's quite weird going in there because it's a huge building in 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 central london with these massive open plan offices and then studios attached and a sort of you know, vast newsroom in the basement. And there it's like, it's like kind of being in a sort of zombie apocalypse film, you know, kind of before the zombies come because you walk in and there's no one there, you know, there's just literally there's a couple of security guards and, the, and that's it. You know, there's nobody at reception anymore. There's no, and it's normally this really busy, noisy place. Um, and there's just very limited staff in the building. And when you go in, there are these signs up everywhere sort of saying, you know, beware, COVID, one person in a lift, you know, make sure you wipe your work surfaces. And then you you get into the office and there's like this big thing of kind of antiseptic uh, wipes on every desk. And the same when you go into the studio. Um, and uh, we now do, I mean, pretty much everybody who's not broadcast critical, um, who's either not broadcasting or is not an engineer, it doesn't go in. So uh, before we would have these morning meetings in 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 the front row office, and uh, the team is the sort of about kind of sort of about eight of us would uh, you know sit around the table, drink our coffees, go through the newspapers, discuss what we're going to you know do that day. Now we do that on Zoom, and uh, and then I would spend my day writing my script in this open plan office, and you know having chats with producers about you know how I would do this interview or that interview or how we were going to do that night's program and now we just do all of that online and about an hour and a half before I go on air um I take um we're allowed to have black cabs now which is feels quite safe uh we go into the I go into the uh into the studio and um and broadcast yeah having wiped everything down <laughs> how do you feel in terms of the interview format do you think it's changed much then in these circumstances because I, I know you'd be doing sort of uh interviews over school, uh, Skype calls in the past anyway has there kind of been any shift in how you're going about doing that or is it kind of you know business as usual I mean interestingly enough on front row we were very snooty about Skype calls I think because when Skype first started I think it was really quite bad quality and it has improved um, and zoom sound quality is pretty good and the microphones have improved but because we do quite long interviews, I mean, I worked in news for many years and, you know, we've always done a, quite a lot of Skype and phone interviews and, and on the news radio programmes, but um, but not um, uh, not in front row because we do these long interviews. But of course, all of that's changed now. We have to. And actually, it's been fine. And the real revelation actually has been we're trying to do an element of live performance every night to give performers in the arts community a platform. So a musician that's maybe had their tour cancelled and, you know, an opera singer who's had the, their performance cancelled, um, uh, you know, a poet. Um, we've had extracts from plays that were going to be performed with, uh, you know, maybe a couple of the actors doing a, uh, doing a little extract and the playwright on and so on. We've done that quite a few times. Uh, last night we had uh, the actress Emma Thompson on, you know, doing her favourite poem, but then talking about what she was doing in lockdown. Uh, and before we would never have countenanced allowing a, you know, a performance on Skype from somebody's home. And I'm not going to claim that it's sort of great quality, um, but um, 
but it's you know it's live and it's it's can often quite moving um um and one thing we've got every friday now is this a uh, wonderful performance in quality from a concert hall in Reykjavik by this award-winning pianist, Vikingar Olafsson. Um, and he, because uh, we'd interviewed him just before the lockdown, sort of suggested that he could get Icelandic Broadcasting Corporation to hook us up um, with the, this. So he goes and sits in this empty concert hall <laughs> with his grand piano and he plays for us every Friday night and in quality. And it's sort of wonderful and chats to us about how he's doing during lockdown in Iceland. Um, so it, it's rather sort of serendipitous. It's, it's, you know, last night when I was chatting to Emma Thompson, I sort of said, well, you know, where are you? And she said, oh, I'm up in Scotland with my mum, my husband and and my daughter, and at this moment, I'm I'm literally talking to you from underneath a pile of cushions, and I laugh because I mean I'm talking to you now with a couple of cushions next to me to stop to stop the <laughs> to make the quality a little bit better. Um, so I think, and I think audiences have got used to it. So it will definitely change the way I think we work. I think that there will be a lot more homeworking. Um, I think that rather than sort of all kind of crowding together in an open plan, noisy office, we'll get we'll do stuff. And, don't, and I think we'll also we you know, we will do continue to do interviews on Skype, whereas in the past we would have said to somebody, unless you can get to a local radio station, if you're outside of London or you can come into the studio, uh, we won't uh, record it. We won't do you. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we obviously talk so much about what we've lost during this period and we have obviously lost lots in the arts but I think it's interesting to hear you say you're now doing things which you probably wouldn't have even thought about doing a few months ago so yeah do you feel like it's kind of also maybe opened up some new avenues or ways of thinking about reporting for front front row? Yes, I absolutely think it does. In fact, we had a discussion the other day about, you know, how we would do things differently. And initially, the idea of having an element of live performance every night was part of the BBC's wider initiative called Culture and Quarity to, you know, this realisation that all these, you know, artists, um, you know, musicians and so on, um, who were going to perform were unable to and that we could offer them a virtual platform and that that was part of the BBC's role. Um, as a public service broadcaster, you know, to give to, to to give an outlet to the community that we that we serve, front row, the, which is the arts community, um, and you know, lovers of the arts. Whereas, I mean, I, and I think now, I mean, we going forward, even after this, we'll definitely, hopefully, keep that element of live performance, um, and we'll be less precious about it because before it was like, okay, unless the musician can come into the studio with the band, um, and we can have a rehearsal. Um, we won't do it. Now, I'm not saying we won't still want to have that in quality because it is undoubtedly better. But if we can't have, you know, the grand piano in the studio, well, you know, maybe we'll we, 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 we'll just, you know, go with it. And I would never have, I mean, I had two young actresses the other night performing from a play, a, a, as yet unperformed play, new play, um, from uh, Newcastle Live Theatre. Um, they were, they were, each in different houses performing this play and the playwright and the director on another line. And you know what? It was fine. Yeah, I think it's forced everyone to kind of be both more flexible and more creative in some ways, while also obviously stifling creativity in other ways. I suppose this kind of follows on now, just asking kind of, well, over email, we were saying that 
you were revisiting certain classic Hollywood films, which we'll be talking about today. I just wondered, do you think there was something particular about this time we're going through that made you return to those films specifically? Was it a coincidence? Um, or are they films you often return to? I think it's a little bit of both, actually. Um, I, I was listening to, there was there was some uh, polling done uh, recently about what BBC programmes people are listening to under um, lockdown and people are going, are being very nostalgic. In fact, Britbox, you know, which plays lots of sort of old programmes reported that people are, are going back to sort of watching quite old sitcoms and so on that they might have watched, you know, during their childhood. So I think there's an element of during a crisis, you return to the familiar. I think in my particular case, it happened that for a while when I, I mean, my, our kids are grown up now, but, um, um, and, you know, at university and working and so on. But when they were much younger, we used to have a Friday night movie night where we'd try to show them classic films where, where we'd get lots of, oh, it's in black and white, it's really boring. And um, uh, But over Christmas, I was in New York and my now 22-year-old son was with me and we and uh, we noticed that Casablanca was on at cinema in, um, you know, down the Lower East Side um, one after, rainy afternoon. And... Uh, and I was reminding him how he moaned about me making him watch Casablanca when he was about eight years old, which was a complete waste of time, obviously, because he hated it. I said, it's a much better film, you know, we ought to, but I hadn't really seen it for a very long time either. And so we, we, you know, went into this cinema and we had this sort of glorious afternoon watching Casablanca. And what struck me at the time was how incredibly relevant it felt now. Uh, because it's all about people trying to get, I mean, and I don't mean COVID, but I mean more than what was happening beforehand, because remember, this is pre-COVID December, but, you know, people desperately trying to get papers, um, mass immigration, you know, uh, uh, trying to move across borders unsuccessfully. And that, uh, um, so I, th I started to think about how watching an old film is also t how much it tells you about the time in which it was made. And we discussed quite a lot about that at, at the time. And uh, so that kind of got me started. So once, once the lockdowns began and my husband and I were sort of you know, lo locked in the house and we go, you know, because of my nature of my job, I do, I tend to see new stuff all the time. You know, I'm always going to screenings of new films and new plays or whatever, uh, which is great. Um, but, I sort of thought, why not read? Because I'd so enjoyed this experience of watching Casablanca again and seeing it through different eyes. I thought, oh, well, I wonder, uh, I wonder about watching some other films that I enjoyed, and possibly maybe some that I I hadn't seen before. Uh, so I God, I'm now going to forget. But there's a there's a Humphrey Brogart film that he made about two years after Casablanca. Oh, that's right. It's called to, to, to Have or to Have Not. And I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll watch that. That was made in 1944, two years after Casablanca. So we began with that. Um, actually, it's not a really very good film because you realise that. So I'm not recommending it, but it's interesting. Uh, it was interesting reading about it because it's like a sort of bad remake of Casablanca. It's set on a French Caribbean island. You know, uh, it's all centres around a bar you know, it's wartime, there's a silly French policeman, there's, you know, Humphrey Bogart being, you know, wisecracking. But, you know, instead of Ingrid Bergman, 
um, you have Lauren Bacall. And indeed, Lauren Bacall, this was where Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall met on the set of To Have or To Have Not. And she was only 19. So it's, it's partly the Googling around the film that's interesting, isn't it? So you watch it and you kind of think, oh, this isn't as good as Casablanca. And, you know, you could just sort of imagine the studios going, well, Casablanca worked well. Let's just make the same movie again. You know, yeah, somewhere French. Uh, We'll have Humphrey and a young woman, you know, and then the, she's fleeing somewhere and everyone's trying to get papers and there'll be a great pianist in the bar. You know, it's exactly the same. But um, uh, uh, and then you start analysing kind of why isn't it as good as why is to have or not have not not as good as Casablanca? And, and, and we discuss that. But also kind of Lauren Bacall is extraordinary and she's only 19. And this is when they when they fell in love. And uh, uh, apparently um, somebody once, uh, I think it was Howard Hawks, the, the director of that film, said that Humphrey Bogart fell in love with the character that Lauren Bacall played in To Have or To Have Not. And so she kept playing that role for the rest of her life. And it's a very much a kind of wise, cracking, low-voiced, you know, uh, sort of uh, film noir, you know, damn. It's, it's great. Um, so it's worth watching for her performance, actually, if you're a film buff. And, and the history of that, because, of course, it was one of the great, you know, Hollywood romances of, uh, of the 1950s, uh, because he was married to somebody else and he was much older and he eventually... Uh, uh, left his wife for the young Lauren Bacall. I think the reference to Lauren Bacall is is very fitting for the kind of nature of our discussion today because obviously, as uh, Colette mentioned, uh, the focus um, that we were going to go for was on two films that uh, are turning 70 this year, Sunset Boulevard um, and All About Eve. And both of those films fit very much within that mould of what you were saying about revisiting old classics, kind of learning about the context around them. Having, as I said, turned 70 this uh, year for both of those features, what exactly do you feel was uh, the enduring characteristics of films like this to still be in the public consciousness this long after their release? Oh, that's an interesting question, actually. I think one of the things that particularly strikes me watching those two films again is these very strong female leads. So you have Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard and Betty Davis um, in, you know, All About Eve, these great, you know, iconic Hollywood actresses. And, and, and if I compare that really to the age in which, you know, I grew up and let's face it, really until quite recently, you did not have women opening movies. You just did, you had very, very, very few films uh, with 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 a with a female lead, a strong female lead, and so I think for me that's you know they they they're quite uh, compelling. I think the storylines in both of those films are eternal in some ways. Uh, so all about Eve, any actor or performer, uh, and. You know, particularly even now, you know, women performers, actresses in particular, worry about aging, worry about, you know, a younger model taking over and replacing them uh, for really obvious reasons, actually, because, you know, even in those days, there weren't that many good roles for older women. And, you know, you sold yourself as an actress, uh, you know, a, a lot on your looks so I think that that is it. They're, they're relatable stories, uh, which will never go away. I think they also tell us. It's kind of fascinating because they tell us quite a lot about that particular time 
For instance, I mean, Sunset Boulevard is very much about a film industry. It was made in 1950 at a time when the film industry thought it was on its last legs. It was, a, it was you know, it, it, television was arriving. It was very threatened. The old studio system that had been built up under silent movies, uh, uh, which Gloria Swanson's character in Sunset Boulevard uh, represents, uh, was was collapsing. Uh, and actually, you could sort of say, right, it's really relevant right now because the film industry in in in, in Hollywood and indeed everywhere uh, is going through a massive transition with the arrival of 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 you know Netflix and Amazon and films being made by streaming uh, organizations like them, the collapse of the traditional cinema and COVID is going to really accelerate this. So what we're seeing in the last week is this huge row between Universal Studios and two of the largest cinema chains in the world. And we were discussing this on Front Row last night, actually. So you've got AMC, Odeon and Cineworld, who are now threatening to boycott all Universal Studio films. And that, incidentally, includes the new James Bond, which is, was due out this summer. And the reason for this is three weeks ago, Universal Studios released an animated film called um, Trolls World Tour uh, online. And they have made uh, something like $100 million in the US uh, uh, alone, uh, making it uh, a sort of video on demand, I think charging, I can't remember, it's like $15, $20 a, a hit, um, and people could rent it for 48 hours, which meant that the kids could watch it several times over in that 48 hours. And this then prompted the head of Universal Studios to say, well, hey, that worked really well. Uh, maybe even after the lockdown's finished, we'll probably carry on, you know, releasing films in cinemas, but on online. Uh, and of course, this has absolutely terrified traditional cinema chains because that's the, I mean, they really rely on the big blockbusters to sell the popcorn that they make the money out of. And cinemas were already in trouble because now people have got big tellies and projectors at homes and screens. And so will they go out? Will, will what be what, watching film as a collective experience in the cinema, will it now end? And uh, so actually, you know, watching something like Sunset Boulevard now, it may feel like an old movie, but the themes about change um uh in in the industry and the fear of change in the industry are still relevant and then at the same time you recognize things that never change so for instance you have the character of joe gillis the struggling writer from dayton ohio um in sunset boulevard he's trying to make it and keeps on getting all his scripts turned down and stuff well hollywood uh i mean i spent a couple of months uh in in los angeles earlier this year because my, my husband was until the lockdown doing uh working at the university of southern california um and i accompanied there and you know it really is like i mean every time you get in a in a taxi in la you meet a struggling writer or director it really is like that you know and uh and somebody like joe gillis is totally recognizable today and then watching all about evil. Again, another interesting thing is watching all about Eve again. Is is you know seeing um, seeing Marilyn Monroe um, making one of her first performances uh, was fascinating. I, yeah, I, definitely. I, I definitely think it's a sort of changing of the guard, isn't it? A little bit as well. I think the fifties kind of is that period in which there's that transition from a production system dominated by execs to more of a focus on the stars, the kind of directors behind it. I mean, just in in that same vein. 
what are your thoughts sort of on both of those films in particular sunset boulevard that kind of element of meta textuality that goes on in that you do have gloria swanson who is a silent movie actress or was one having a performance in which she's a faded star both on screen and in real life um and in addition to that the kind of smattering of uh, faded old silent movie stars like Buster Keaton and uh, Ann Nielsen as a kind of waxworks that exist still within Hollywood, but are very much, as I said, faded, obscure, and out of the kind of public recognition and fame that they once had. I think that's why I, I'd say what's interesting about that is is that it's eternal. You know, you all there is always a changing of the guard, isn't there? And there's always anybody, any you know, actor or performer or musician or whatever, uh, it, it, it fears losing the adulation that they once had, uh, which is why these films still stand up even now. Uh, we all fear losing something that, that we once had, um, uh, you know, a recognition that we once had. That's, and and it, that, that, that's, that's very common. Yeah, exactly. But I just, of course, for both All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard, as you say, you've got these two incredible, audacious women front and centre at both of them. I just wondered what your perception was of both of those individuals as you've kind of been re-watching them, because I think that people from criticism I've read, they seem to think that Norma's character in Sunset Boulevard is far more of a kind of caricature or, or even a gargoyle as a kind of word that has been used to describe her, where we have Margot in All About Eve, who is complex, not always sympathetic, but seems to kind of speak to people in a way that Norma might not. And I felt very um, certain that Norma was a complex character that uh, Swanson was really bringing to life. But I just wondered how you felt about their depictions alongside one another of these aging film stars i mean i i i i did have i think with both of them watching them back you would my i was struck by how stagey they both were quite theatrical i mean to be honest actually i was slightly disappointed by it all about eve when i watched it again recently because i remembered it when i saw it when i was much younger as being much more sinister and I find it less so now. Um, and I think I was struck by how sort of slightly stagey the acting was. And and that's because, of course, you know, again, you know, what was to come later in the 60s and 70s was, was realism um, and, you know, cinema verite. And so we became much more used to a naturalistic type of filmmaking it, depiction. And so that was... Now, I mean, as for the Gloria Swanson, I think there is an element of the sort of gargoyle character, but I think that's deliberate she's supposed to be miss havisham i mean he he actually calls her miss havisham at one point she is trapped in this kind of you know gormenghast mansion crumbling mansion she is trapped in time playing a role very deliberately that's part of it so uh, uh so i think that's completely fitting for the situation in which she's uh in as where so it, it it's i think what we're talking about is the Bette Davis in All About Eve is in some ways more naturalistic if you compared it to the Gloria Swanson at the same time through our eyes now because we're so used to sort of a more naturalistic realist form of cinema it looks stagey but within the context of that film well she's a stage actress she's always acting a role that's part of her that's part of the character so that didn't really bother me I, th I thought that was in, in, in keeping absolutely 
with, with, with what the film intended in each case. That is something that me and Matty were speaking about earlier in terms of the more naturalistic acting we've just become so accustomed to. And we were wondering if perhaps with kind of revivals of it, like with the relatively recent stage production of All About Eve with Gillian Anderson, if perhaps people had just become quite disconnected. I didn't actually see the stage production of All About Eve, so I can't kind of comment on it, but... uh... It had quite mixed reviews, didn't it? And I I often think if you have plays which are remakes uh, of films, particularly favourite films, um, I'm not a big fan, actually, because I sort of think that um, you're often disappointed. It's like like I've never really seen an adaptation of a of a book that I've loved in the cinema that I really liked because very often they were they were made that story was written for that particular art form it doesn't always transfer I know that's a broad generalization then I think the other part of your question is you know could we see could we see a change could we see a change a move away from a, a naturalistic type of uh, acting in film um, and I think we do from time to time, and my mind's going to go blank about sort of examples. But I think the great thing about uh, cinema is how endlessly creative it, it is, um, and indeed, you know, many art form. And so why not? You know, you could easily have a move away from, from, from realism, perhaps particularly as we move into very dark times. Um, I think in quite dark times, we, we maybe want more fantasy. So maybe we'll see a move away from realistic sort of, you know, documentary style uh, dramas and to, to something more more of a kind of fantasy world. Maybe we'll see a return to musicals. <laughs> I mean, I guess we've already kind of sort of seen it with the emergence of films like um, La La Land in the last couple of years and Rocket Man last year. There's kind of that musical element of fantasy does seem to crop up again. I mean, just... On on the top of that, then, surely a point that could be made or sort of I suppose to counter what's been said so far is the kind of delusion that you have of Gloria's character as um, Norma in Sunset Boulevard could very easily be seen as fantasy from her perspective, but conflated as delusion from ours. I mean, do, do you think these films are trying to tap a, a fantastical element that internally makes sense within the film but to the audience is very much speaking towards the kind of futility of having these delusions of remaining a star in a world that's constantly changing yes i mean i think i i I think that's correct i think it goes absolutely with her character is that that she she lived you know during the at the uh, if you think about gloria swanson's character at the height of this wonderful silent movie era um, where stars were almost like kind of goddesses uh, and the studio system kept a very, very strong um, control over their image and how they were seen. And this feeling that when talkies came in that some of the magic was lost, you know, just hearing somebody's voice, you lose the magic. And, you know, she she repeats constantly during the film, it's all in the eyes, it's all in the, in the face. <laughs> yeah. you know, that sort of, you know. Um, uh, 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 and she is she's she's trapped i suppose it's a lesson really and about how you sh- you should never remain trapped in certain ways of doing things i mean we were talking a few minutes ago about how you know covid has forced i've been forced in front row to change the way we work none of us can afford to be resistant to change 
And yet, fundamentally, as human beings, we fear change. And this is often the conflict, isn't it, between, you know, uh, older generations and younger generations, younger generations are open to change, older generations are like, no, this is the way we've done it with, you know, we're always going to stay there. And and that, that, that again, is, is, is eternal. Um, and so that story taps into, uh, absolutely into that. So, uh, uh, and we, but we see her as quite a sad character, don't we? We see her as being trapped in a moment and refusing to move on, refusing to adapt. Mm. Yeah, well, that's quite interesting about the refusal to adapt and like whether we pity her or whether we fear her or admire her with Norma, because I think what I found was that there's that obviously wonderful reversal whereby we know from the very beginning that it's it's actually going to be Joe that ends up in the pool floating in this kind of almost like Gatsby-esque ending really and that by the end it's Norma who does in a sense get to have her final show walking down those steps and giving one final amazing performance so it kind of was interesting to me how Sunset Boulevard as much as it is of course a very cynical and um, sardonic take on people's perceptions of change and of Hollywood it's also giving her a kind of a kind of liberation in a sense as as much as it is a dark ending I just wonder kind of how you found that on rewatching it and how you felt towards her by the end Norma well I think she does become more and more sinister as the film develops and so I think the feeling you do have of her is you're quite right you go from sort of thinking of from pity to fear to thinking she's actually quite sinister. And maybe that is because she symbolises somebody powerful with a lot of money who refuses to change and uses that financial power to control everybody around her. Um, and, and because, I mean, and ultimately, ultimately, there is an uneven power relationship between her and Joe Gillis, the, the struggling writer, and she kind of wins, doesn't she, really? She, she, you know, the 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 unbending, unchanging nature of her will wins out over, over Joe. So, uh, yes, she, she, I suppose she is sinister. Yes, definitely. And the fact that she does have this immense wealth, or we're told she does, and she seems to, but at the same time, she lives in this incredibly decrepit crumbling dilapidated grandeur and kind of seems almost reluctant to even put the money in to make those changes it's as if she can't even bear to do the repairs because maybe that would even violate the thing that she she loves so much but yeah like you say I think it's, it is a complex relationship we have with her as the viewer perhaps more so than with Margot in All About Eve Yes, it's a mystery, actually, the, the money thing. But I think it's, a, you know, if she's got all this money, why doesn't she do up the house? But I think you're, I think you're right. I think that, I think we, she probably does have money. Uh, and we kind of see evidence of that when she lays on this grand party and then doesn't invite anybody. <laughs> um, um, she buys all this champagne and stuff. Uh, 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 but I think it is because she, because she, Partly she's a recluse as well, doesn't she? She doesn't really want that many people coming in to her world. 
she is, uh, you know, again, to, re- to revert to the Miss Havisham sitting in the Grand Mansion, just, mm. uh, you know, living in this this loop of a fantasy. And maybe if you're maybe if you're trapped in this kind of fantasy loop, you, you, you don't think about practical things like, oh, I'll get the house repainted, the drive <laughs> redone. You know, let's have the garden re-landscaped at the mansion. You know. You're just sitting inside. Maybe it's a representation of because actually inside the house looks fine. It's just outside. She's she's like a kind of a sort of uh, she's created her stage set um, and this this bubble and she won't allow the changing world outside to come in. And when it does try and come in in the form of of Joe, uh, it ends badly for him. So, so do you feel that loop? kind of translates over to all about Eve in a kind of cyclical sense because obviously it's a lot more grounded than Sunset Boulevard as, as Colette said about those kind of gargoyle performances from Gloria Swanson but you have that sense at the end that uh, Eve is being now usurped by a new adulating fan just like she was for Margot I mean do you think that's probably the reason why a film like that resonated more with the Academy obviously it won the best picture in 1950 where Sunset Boulevard did not uh, and what did you think of that kind of cyclical structure um, to to the narrative did you find it kind of rewarding or quite cynical it's both rewarding and uh, you know and you know I mean I love all the kind of you know sassy cynical dialogue I think that the character that Betty Davis plays is much more nuanced because she is aware that change has to come I mean remember right from the beginning she's saying from the playwright I'm too old to play these parts I shouldn't be paying a 28 year old anymore and she voluntarily kind of exits stage left from playing young women uh, so she's much more self-aware, much, and she is prepared to change. I mean, she's ambitious and she spent her whole life fighting for the limelight, so she's reluctant to give it up. And Eve is a pretty <laughs> nasty, scheming person who worms her way into the Betty Davis's character's you know, dressing room and, and, take, and uh, takes advantage of her. So you understand her reaction. She's not, I mean, Gloria Swanson's Norma is, you know, she's pretty, she's pretty nuts, really. Um, And although, you know, (laughs) although Betty Davis's Margot in All Are About Eve is, you know, a big character, she's not delusional. She knows exactly what's happening. And I suppose um, what works so well about All About Eve is that from the beginning, uh, the director really makes us understand that in order for Eve to worm her way in, as you say, she was only able to do that because Margot and the playwrights and directors surrounding her wanted essentially to feel good about themselves and wanted that ego boost that the Eve provided when this kind of little lost lamb wandered in and they thought, oh, yes, we'll be able to instruct her and kind of take her under our wing. So he's he's very conscious, I think, of making us see that you know this this only works if we have a whole variety of people who have very skewed moral compasses and it's not about critiquing just one individual or one institution which I think is what keeps it quite fresh I think we all you know like to feel better about ourselves by helping others so again that's not it's not unusual that you know Eve 
I mean, the character of Eve, in a sense, is a rather overblown melodramatic character because she's almost too scheming, I think. Uh, You know, she's also too... I think it could have been... But again, you know, that's how I'm seeing that through the, you know, a a 21st century lens of the the lack of realism. But she's, you know, she's a little bit over the top. But she knows exactly how to pull at their heartstrings so that when we first meet her and she inveigles her way um, into Margot's dressing room, she recounts this story about, you know, how she was, you know, had just got married and her husband was killed in the war in the South Pacific. And, you know, the, the, the and she happened to see Margot perform in a theatre in San Francisco soon after that night. And, you know, that helped to get over it. And then she, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all of which, of course, turns out to be uh, complete rubbish but she she knows how to press buttons she's she's scheming and manipulative and that i mean you know quite scary and that's not to say that there are people out there like that in the world or we are i think she's she's a little bit one note she's a little bit over the top in 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 terms of that um but you know that that goes with the you know it goes with the times one thing that me and matty were speaking about earlier which connects to this is in all about Eve, there is very much this sense of, um, of course, the disposability of just people themselves and how people become resources uh, available to one another and how we how we use each other. And then I think in Sunset Boulevard, that's obviously what Billy Wilder is is so so cynical about and so so uncomfortable with in terms of Hollywood that kind of disposability. But what I wanted to ask about was. Obviously, Billy Wilder was making the film not about the theatre, but about Hollywood itself. And he was using money from Paramount to critique Paramount. And I think, obviously, it was great for them because it it, it did very well. It was nominated for many awards and obviously we're still watching it now. Um, And it does strike an incredibly um, kind of grotesque kind of tone. I think it was actually meant to start with a scene where Joe was actually going to be in the morgue, lying down as a corpse, recounting the story to the other corpses. That they were even they were even okay with that. That only got cut at the last minute. So I just wondered what you thought of that kind of how how did he walk that very fine line between making them money while also lampooning them. <laughs> lampooning them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I think he does a brilliant job of uh, highlighting the sort of, you know, transactional nature of, of, of Hollywood and the fact that you're only as good as your last movie and so on. I think he, he's also part of a very long, you know, long tradition that, which has gone on since. I mean, if you think about, you know, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for instance, you know, I mean, uh, uh, there have been many, uh, there's been many critiques of, of Hollywood um, and that's fine. Uh, I think... You know, again, I've been struck when I've spent time in in Los Angeles that uh, you know that 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 transactional nature of relationships is still very current in that industry. I mean, you will hear stories of you know people whose you know their last movie bombed, and so they stop getting invited to the parties, you know, <laughs> or they can't get the meetings. You know, that that seems kind of that's still the case. I mean, one of the interesting things I think that actually might happen, and I'm now going to digress a little bit away from the from the films that we're talking about, back to what I was saying before about 
change in cinema is it could be that with streaming and new technology and the breakup of the big studios and, and, and so on, and the, the cinema change as distributors, we could see film becoming a little bit more democratic. So, for instance, the Academy uh, announced that uh, this year or next year's Oscars, um, they will allow films that have been streamed to be entered for the first time. Uh, in the past, they've had to have a cinema release. Um and, you know, given that a lot of the big releases probably won't come out this year, the next Oscars will be really interesting because there may be films that. Uh, but I mean, to go to go back to your point about sort of critiquing, critiquing Hollywood, I, I, I think he, I think Wilder does it very well. I think he was also if he, what Wilder was really brilliant about is, is sort of doing politics with, um, a, you know, a small P kind of thing. So if you think about the apartment. It's quite a political film, actually. On the surface, it's a comedy, you know, with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, and he works in an office and he allows senior execs in his office to um, use his apartment on the Upper West Side of New York as a sort of shag pad for their morning and <laughs> their afternoon affairs. Great um, way of putting it. <laughs> is that, uh, um, yeah, but what is his character, Jack Lemmon? I mean, he's a, he's a wage slave. He's a drone in this office. He's... He's patronised by these executives who sort of call him buddy boy and pat him on the head. And the the sort of the, the depiction of the patriarchy, really, you know, the way these senior executives, you know, treat women, treat Shirley MacLaine's character, treat him is 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 pretty powerful. So, you know, on the surface, you have this farce, this this, you know, this entertaining comedy but underneath it's pretty poignant and quite yeah. sad. That was the film of the selection that we watched that I knew least about. And uh, first watching it, I'd, I'd heard terms thrown around like comedy and romance to describe it. And like you said, I what I found more than anything was this incredible takedown of kind of corporate America, which I feel like I'd only really seen in more recent films. Um, that we, uh, you know, kind of sorry to bother you or other films. Which yeah, that are, came to mind here as well. Yeah, in that kind of office dynamic and things like that. But yes, I was left with this feeling of um, obviously immense kind of solidarity with the pair of them by the final 10 minutes or so, but also just with how tragic so much of what was happening was. And, and like you said, how political but subtle his um, approaches. So it did make me more interested in, in Billy Wilder as an individual as well. Actually, for me, it had echoes. Of, I don't know if you've ever watched Mad Men. Um, yeah, definitely. TV series about the advertising industry. That it, it really reminded me of that because I thought Mad Men was, you know, like The Apartment, absolutely brilliant at that kind of highlighting, you know, uh, the, 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 the patriarchy of, of corporate America. Uh, and to extent, you know, some extent, you know, when you look at sort of, you know, big banks and financial firms on Wall Street, apparently it's, you know, it's still a bit like that. <laughs> it's very male. Um, uh, so uh, uh, I think that 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 is kind of fa- it's fascinating. And I think that's why I think Billy Wilder is very, very, very clever because Mad Men's dark and quite depressing and I, I enjoyed watching it. But it's that ability to make you laugh, but also feel kind of sad and, you know, uh, uh, and take in a political edge uh, that is really genius about him. 
I do I do think one of Wilder's strengths as well was as you kind of mentioned was making it much more personable than other attacks would be on kind of like corporate America greed as Colette was saying the apartment really strikes uh that chord quite well because you know you have all of these kind of slightly chauvinistic uh, executives trying to use this apartment for their extramarital affairs but none of them are cartoonish figures uh, sort of in in the same vein as um, Norma in Sunset Boulevard they're they're very much not very pleasant and uh, quite you know chauvinistic as I said but they're they're characters with clear motivations and wanting to sort of kind of reflect a kind of more permissive society that you kind of have in in Britain and the US at this time I mean do you think that someone like Wilder was very conscious of how he was kind of reflecting social mores changing or do you think it was just kind of uh, more coincidental no I don't think it I I don't think a script like that is coincidental I think he knew exactly what he was doing I think he you know I think he was a very smart man and he was absolutely he was absolutely aware of that actually while we're talking about corporate America another film I've just re-watched during the lockdown which I have literally not seen for a very long time um, was uh, Wall Street with Michael Douglas made in the 1980s which was really interesting to watch now um, it coined the catchphrase greed is good um, and I think that watching it now I really felt having kind of lived through those years that we are still in, in how can I put this we're still living from the effects actually of uh, of of what ha- of what that film was trying to uh, illustrate which was the liberalization of the money markets in the 1980s and this huge boom in 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 financial markets and 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 and, and all of this money that these people were going to make and that was a precursor to the massive inequalities uh, that we now see around the world inequalities that have produced uh, you know the likes of, of of Donald Trump and 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 numerous other uh, populist leaders. So actually, watching Wall Street, I was watching it with my husband, who's a political historian, Misha Glenny, and he we were both kind of thought actually this captures a really important historic moment in time. Mm. That's really interesting in terms of like depicting the period thinking kind of like the mid 80s and wall street i just wonder taking i haven't seen wall street but a film i have watched which i'm quite interested in and um, mary harron's american psycho which is quite a I, I feel as though it does divide people um in terms of if people like it or not or if they find it a bit hard to swallow at points but i wonder if well whether a you think that that adds anything to the discussion of kind of like you said this wall street period and the fact that it came from a later time it was obviously she directed that in i think 2000 so it's she's looking back on a period which had kind of had some time to be reflected on and that yes. kind of thing i mean it's about it, it is in a more oblique way it's about excess and greed isn't it but it's yeah. still social commentary dressed up as something different <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it is because it is very much dressed up. I think as it, it's it is ridiculous in many ways. It it does feel like watching a slasher, but it's I found it quite um quite memorable in many ways, just for certain lines and things, which maybe makes an interesting companion piece to mm. earlier films like Wall Street. But that's but, I mean, uh, all the best films really. I think the best films combine both social commentary 
and entertainment, you know, and I and I would use social commentary in that both and entertainment in the widest possible sense. But you know, it's it's you know a film that you come away from and you think about afterwards, or maybe gets you to look at the world in a different way, is a is a satisfying film, isn't it? So uh, you know, to return to the apartment about its brilliance is that you. Uh, I've, I've actually got a film director friend of mine who who says he watches the apartment every once a year at least to remind himself of of, of, of what a great film is. Um, well, they technically and, describe it as a Christmas movie, don't they? Because it's set around yeah. there. So yeah. But, but I think it's you know he watches it because it is so it's so well constructed. Both uh, you know it is entertaining, um, uh, but the, but the, but but what it tells you about the world as well is so illuminating. It feels to me like the kind of film that like it's interesting he said that he watches it year on year and obviously that's because he enjoys it but to me it, it I having only watched it once I do feel like it might be the kind of film that I kind of get something very different from every time I watch it which I, I don't know if I would necessarily say that about these other two films we've been watching it has a kind of complexity to it um also in the way that it's shot which undeniably Sunset Boulevard is um a beautifully shot film as well but I was really taken by uh his work in the apartment and kind of really capturing the city um and different elements of it so yeah I think I might revisit that now yes I I agree with you actually I think of all yeah I I I, I think it is a a better film than Sunset Boulevard but I would still absolutely they're very different so it's a bit unfair so I, I would still recommend watching Sunset Boulevard to people yeah, I have to say, I don't know if I would really be able to guess it was the same director if I wasn't told. I, I think I think he's constantly changing. And, you know, like, I think he's has one of those filmographies that just evolves so interestingly that you're so right. It's kind of hard to put your finger on one director of one style aesthetically and narratively. I mean, that's probably the sign of a very, very, very good director in, in, in most respects. But it's it's also interesting to see the progression of his career because you don't actually have that many Hollywood directors that are transitioning from straight after or just uh, during the sort of kind of uh, Second World War into the kind of 60s and the 70s to see that transition so vividly. And I think you get afforded so many different perspectives and acknowledgements of different aspects of society from his films. That's just a godsend and a blessing. And and as your friend uh, who watches it once a year, Kirsty, probably will attest to uh, for any film buff or or, or 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 fan of cinema out there, it's so easy to dissect and, and understand in so many different ways. Yes, no, absolutely. You know, and it, I mean, I think it's, it, you know, it's worth kind of thinking about Wilder's you know, background, you know, he, he, he came from Berlin, he fled uh, Berlin uh, during the rise of the Nazi party, went to, to Paris and then moves to Hollywood in the 1930s. I mean, he's, so he's got this very, you know, cosmopolitan European background and sensibility that he brings with him to his Hollywood career. Definitely. And I I think the last thing I'll say on Wilders, I remember reading a story about him when he was working um, on Some Like It Hot with Tony Curtis. And Tony Curtis used to uh, do an occasional piece of art or portraiture. Um, and he presented it in an art gallery. And Billy Wilder went up and looked at the picture and said something along the lines of, this is terrible. 
um, right in front of Tony Curtis and then looked at him and went, oh, I thought I was speaking in German then. <laughs> and I think that really does sum up like the kind of witty, sardonic nature that you kind of see throughout all of his films. Yes, he was a, he was said to be a writer's director, wasn't he? I mean, he you know he thought that, that a good script was was supreme, and that may seem obvious, but you know it's worth when you when you watch a movie seeing how many writers are credit, credited to a screenplay. Um, and having sat through um, in my job a huge amount of turkeys, uh, very often a sign of a turkey will be when you've got five credits under the writing. And you think, oh, okay, I know what's happened now. You know, the studio, the director, whatever, has been has asked for it to be rewritten again and again and again and again. And, you know, too many cooks sort of thing. Um, so I think, you know, respect for, for the writing and the script um, is pretty important. Yeah, and while I won't firmly believe it in all regards, I think that kind of autorial spirit of like a one-man vision, one-woman vision in writing a script does sometimes produce, you know, really like excellent outcomes. I think we should probably wrap it up there because we would probably go diverging into so many different films and go on for hours, but we really, really appreciated you (laughs) taking time out to speak to us today, Kirsty. Yeah, one of the things that we tend to do at the end of our episode, sort of the bookend things when we have guests is to ask them, I suppose it being... Uh, well, 70 years since the films that we were discussing, Sunset Boulevard and uh, All About Eve, but also the turn of a new decade. Um, what was one of your favourite films, either from 2019 or from the last decade of film in particular? And I'm sure you have many swirling around your head as part of your part of your job, but uh, what was one of your favourites? So I think definitely my favourite film of 2019, and this will be quite contentious, but it was Jojo Rabbit. I absolutely loved it. And I know it was a Marmite film, because quite a lot of people hated it uh, because I think they felt that you couldn't make some kind of quirky comedy out of Nazism. I totally disagree with that. I actually think uh, there was a long tradition of that. If you look at Charlie Chaplin, for instance, um, and The Great Dictator, which was made you know, during the war, um, uh, uh, another of my favourite films... Uh, Ernst Lubitsch to be or not to be set in Warsaw uh, during the Second World War under the Nazis. It's comedy. So I think there's a long tradition of that. I loved it because I thought, I loved the look of it. Um, I thought visually the colours were absolutely stunning, the costumes. I liked seeing the Second World War through the eyes of a child. I thought, uh, and making him a member of Hitler Youth and having Hitler as his imaginary friend. Um, and I thought there was something rather wonderful about, uh, uh, you know, a New Zealand Maori actor um, playing Hitler, <laughs> which is sort of um, so. Uh, so but I know, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's a film a lot of people felt quite strongly about. That they didn't like that. They didn't like the sort of quirky sentimentality of it. Uh, so there's there's you know, there's comedy and tragedy within one film, as well as being a sort of visual feast which actually kind of relates to the the other question you ask about one of you know my favorite one of my favorite directors is the mexican director guillermo del toro and uh i absolutely loved his films like pan's labyrinth the shape of water um because i love the visual palette um i think that he really makes the most of cinema he he you know his 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 production designs take you into another realm and I like 
the color palette that he uses uh, again. So uh, yeah, that, those would be my some of my favorites. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Kirsty, for you know taking time out of your day. I'm sure, as you said, as you qualify as a key worker, you've still got plenty of work to do in this period. And we really appreciate that you've uh, taken a bit of the time out to uh, to, to talk to right. us. Um, well, good luck with your podcast. I think it's great what you're doing. It's uh, you know, uh, it's uh, and it will so really, much. you know, I mean, later on, it really stand you in good stead. I think you know, if you're you know, if you if, if you want to work in radio and something, be able to show that you've made your own radio programs it really does make a difference so well done for doing yeah it's definitely been a, a learning curve yeah yeah and yeah. especially now I mean there's so many hurdles to jump over but I think it's actually probably for us it's also meant that I don't know we've been able to, to connect with people that have some time as well that well absolutely they yeah. are great all right well look you both take care and good luck okay you too thank you good luck with your, with right. your show Bye. Bye. Bye.